expand your mind and enrich your world. It's time for another outstanding podcast from ICRT. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, a roundup of the top news stories from around the island over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is economist correspondent Jane Ricards. Jane. Good evening, Keith. And also joining us is Ross Feingold, a senior advisor for DC International Advisory. Ross. Good evening. So, of course, the biggest news of this week uh, happened bright and early. On Monday, KMT head Eric Zhu met in Beijing with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Many hailed the meeting as a historic step in advancing peaceful cross-strait relations. However, there's also been plenty of criticism of the trip that's rolled out over the course of this week. Uh, That criticism has mostly focused on comments made by Zhu during the meeting uh, that put just a little bit of a different wording to the 1992 consensus than what the KMT has been using. But before we get into that controversy, uh, let's spend at least a moment on the content of the meeting itself. And I think there's uh, been a pretty wide media consensus that nothing of huge consequence was discussed or agreed to uh, during the one-hour-long meeting. Uh, Jane, would you uh, do you generally agree with that? Yes, I would agree with that. Um, I think Jew, Eric Jew, um, as predicted, said he hoped to expand Taiwan's international space and within within the bounds of the 1992 consensus. For example, Taiwan should participate in the AIIB, the China-backed Industrial Development Bank, and participate in the regional bloc. RCEP, and um, Xi Jinping's um, response was also really didn't say anything new. He did say that he would back Taiwan uh, to join the AIIB, but we kind of already knew yeah, that. Yeah, that, that was not really of a surprise. I think China's been saying that all along. Mm-hmm. So Right. Uh, Ross, you come, did, did you come to a similar conclusion? Yeah, I, I, it was good that... Uh Chairman Zhu focused on economic issues in the meeting. It's it's obviously important to uh, Taiwan's economy and Taiwan's workers. And and I, I think despite the protests last year over the services agreement, that there's there's still a broad consensus in Taiwan in favor of uh, expanded economic ties with China. So that that was good for the domestic audience as much as it was good for just having a a, a good atmosphere with the meeting, with, mm. uh, Mr. Xi. Right. Uh, So without much content-wise to talk about this week, uh, the big focus has been the wording Jew used to characterize the 1992 consensus, uh, which, of course, both the KMT and CCP insist on using as the basis for cross-strait talks. Uh, The KMT has been using uh, wording that is often translated as one China with each side having its own interpretation of what China means. But on Monday, uh, Chu used a slightly different phrase, uh, which the Taipei Times, we're going to go with the Taipei Times translation today, uh, they're translating it as both sides belong to one China, with each side defining China differently. Uh, So many in the DPP have found Chu's wording unacceptable. Uh, Even uh, the head of the Mainland Affairs Council also has backed away from that wording. Uh, and for folks like us that haven't been following this kind of issue really closely, it all seems a little bit legalistic and somewhat hard to follow. So could you guys unpack this for, for me? Uh, let's start with you, Ross. Uh, wh- why, why is this being seen as so unacceptable by many in Taiwan? Well, it's taken the two sides so long to find some wording that allowed them to talk and, and proceed even to, to signing agreements. So anytime an actor, whether it's from Taiwan, regardless of which political party, 
or from China or, for example, a U.S. government official or spokesperson somehow changes the phraseology, they change the word order, they change the tense, uh, etc., there, there's always going to be another actor who, who gets very excited and says this is a great uh, reformulation of how we characterize uh, cross-strait relations. I, I think the important question here is, was this something that Chairman Zhu intended to do? Was it just something that came out at the moment? And uh, we, uh, we'll leave it up to him. But uh, ultimately, and, and he, he, uh, he clarified this upon his return to Taiwan, that the 92 consensus still seems to be the basis for his and his party's mainland policy. And he has clarified that when he talks about China, he's talking about the ROC. Uh, And so is that basically your read on it? Yeah, that's my take on it too. I think that um, all the DPP's sort of reaction to it's a beat-up. I think um, Chu stressed that he meant one China according to the ROC constitution and that he hadn't really said anything sort of different or new. So, um, yeah, although the MAC backed away from it a bit, I still think that Basically, Jews' formulation is not sort of a radical departure from what the KMT has already been saying. And you mentioned you know, it's somewhat legalistic how we get into conversations about this wording. Uh, President Ma is a lawyer. Uh, Tsai Ing-wen is a lawyer. President Chen Shui-bian was a lawyer. In a way, it's refreshing to have a non-lawyer to, <laughs> yeah, just, just kind of informally use these views without, mm-hmm. without getting so excited about uh, word order and dotting I's and crossing T's. All right. So without dwelling on that uh, aspect of the meeting too much, another big source of brouhaha, I guess we could say, uh, this week was a report from the Associated Press uh, that found itself at the center of this week's controversy after it ran an article that reported that during the meeting, this is their wording, Jew affirmed his party's support for eventual unification with the mainland. Okay, now, uh, the KMT has taken exception to this phrasing. Uh, Jane, what, what have they been saying? Well, um, they've been insisting that the report was wrong and they've been demanding that the AP retract it. Um, what's interesting to me, though, is that um, I know this reporter personally and he actually lived in Taiwan for quite some time. Um, he worked in the early 90s, he worked for the China Post, and after that he covered the um, Taiwan for three years for the Associated Press. And um, what's interesting then is that he's someone who understands Taiwan very well, and yet he's interpreted Jews' comments this way. Mm. It's not like it's someone who knows nothing about Taiwan who's been, say, schooled in Beijing and then started reporting in Beijing and had no sort of experience of Taiwan at all. And and again, I'm hoping that you guys can help out the uninitiated, such as myself. How is it that one meeting could produce so many interpretations? How could he get such a different interpretation out of what was said that day? Well, uh, uh, I think a key thing to remember here is that, again, these these phraseologies can be so complex and people have to be so careful. And anytime someone changes one word, there's going to be a, a reaction, sometimes even an overreaction, whether it's from media or other political actors. Uh, but, but the KMT has in- insisted that the report was incorrect. The APP, I think they issued a, re- a re- clarification on the report. Uh, unfortunately, there's a pattern of politicians in Taiwan, regardless of which political party or government officials uh, under the old government of Pre- President Chen or the current government of President Ma, where, where they find the need after engaging with foreign media to uh, clarify what was said. And we see that problem recurring with both English language media, uh, European media, Japanese media. So uh, we'd certainly encourage uh, these actors in Taiwan to be more clear when dealing with foreign media. 
So while Eric Jew, you know, did face a lot of criticism from the DPP this week, it seems like uh, on the KMT side, the general consensus has been that he performed well. He was well poised. Uh, so do you guys think that, you know, overall, the the controversy this week is going to mostly be forgotten and the main uh, and, and in the long run, this is going to help his standing within his own party, at least? I, I think it, it's fair to say that he performed very well, not not just in the one hour meeting with, with uh, Xi Jinping, but in the previous two days in his public appearances, in his speech, etc., uh, when he was in Shanghai. Uh, but now it sort of puts the onus over to uh, Chairman Tsai and the DPP to come up with what their mainland and articulate what their mainland policy is going to be. So uh, as of today, coming out of this meeting, it seems that, that at least Jew, maybe not the p- party entirely, but at least Jew has clearly stated that his mainland policy is, is based on 92 consensus, economic benefits, pursuing things like a IIIB. And, and he's put it back to Tsai Ing-wen to say, well, what's your policy? Uh, so I think uh, everyone in Taiwan is, is waiting for her to, to clearly state uh, her approach to all these issues. I would agree with that, Ross. Um, I spoke to some cross-strait analysts before Ju's trip, and they said that provided Ju didn't appear to be kowtowing to Xi Jinping, if he was managing, if he gave the impression that Taiwan was respected and he was respected, it reminded the public again of the the fact that the KMT has a so-called cross-strait stability card. And as Ross said, I think Ju performed very well, and um, he mentioned Taiwan's need for international space. And after this. Camty politicians such as Ma Ying Zhou are trying to capitalise on this. Like um, last, I think it was yesterday, Ma was speaking at a Mainland Affairs Council exhibition and he was demanding that Tsai clarify her cross-strait policy. And I think that because Juice trip appeared to be a success, they were sort of capitalising on it and... So, right, Jane is uh, raising, raising the possibility of the cross-strait stability card, and I've seen at least a few commentators speculate that what we might be seeing emerge is a bit of coordination between the KMT and the CCP, where the CCP is going to make it clear uh, that the KMT is, is promising cross-strait stability and that there will be more cross-strait stability if they are the ones in charge, and the CCP is going to make it clear they're right because we have control over which way that's going to go. Uh, did you see any evidence uh, that such coordination might be taking shape uh, at, at the meeting this week? Well, it's certainly true that on Wednesday, the Taiwan Affairs Office criticised the DPP for its vague platform. And then the next day, um, Thursday, Maying Joel criticised Tsai Ing-wen for the same thing. I don't know if this is a concerted, coordinated effort, like the CCP and the KMT have actually got together and said, oh, we'll say this on this day and then you say this on that day. I suspect not. I think that giving this impression is a very dangerous game for the KMT if they take it too far because I think there'll never be be a backlash. I think people think that the KMT is conspiring with China and that will make people feel very insecure. Um, So I think... This this might be just an unfortunate impression that's emerged this week or it could be sort of very vague, loose plans between the China and the KMT, but I would advise the KMT not to take it too far. Mm. This is an excellent question because it's something that we'll need to monitor as we get closer to the presidential election and, and once we have a, a KMT nominee and, and we, we have a better view of how important or not important cross-strait issues become in the election. So if it becomes a hot issue, then this will be a very, very important question. And, and certainly the CCP will, will start to send more signals about their, their preference and what kind of reaction they'll take should a DPP 
uh, president be elected. Uh, on the other hand, maybe a few months from now, we'll be talking about where we are in the presidential election. We'll discover that mainland issues are not as significant because there are other domestic issues, general economic issues, social spending issues. Uh, we have a lot of corruption scandals, construction project related type of issues, water issues. Uh, so there might be other things that will be on the agenda. Uh, so it, 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 it's important to monitor this issue. It, it, it's almost uh, early because we don't know yet how important mainland issues will be as we get closer to the presidential election. All right. Well, we've uh, dwelled on this topic for quite a while. So uh, that means that the next couple of topics, we're going to have to get through them fast, but the next one happens to be drought, so I don't think anybody is going to mind us running through this fast, because it is something we've talked about quite a lot on the show. Uh, but today, there's actually some good news, so nobody's going to mind us talking about this. That news is, of course, the announcement late Tuesday that Phase 3 water rationing is over, but only if the bad weather holds. So we're praying for bad weather. Uh, that's up north, at least, but it looks like the south may be getting a similar reprieve. The government says with recent rainfall in the Kaohsiung area, the Water Resources Agency may decide to downgrade the severity of the drought. Uh, so is, is this really just a, ma a matter of getting lucky with rain? We've just lucked out and got more rain than we expected, Jane? Um, I think that there's going to be more rain to come because Taiwan's in the plum rain season, so um, we can expect more heavy rains. Um, so I think that the pattern of rainfall will continue. Mm. Well, unfortunately, relying on the pattern of rain is not a long-term solution to the problem. Obviously. And, and uh, the long-term solution, as, as we all know, is the appropriate level of investment in, in the water infrastructure. And that's not happening. It would be great if any of the candidates for president, regardless of party, this should not be a partisan issue. Or, in fact, if, if legislative, candidate, legislative UN candidates also would, would talk more about this issue and actually – present a plan for how to resolve it. And, and frankly, it involves spending a substantial amount of money on upgrading the infrastructure. Uh, in, in a way, it's, it's just very unfortunate that simply because there's been a few days of heavy rain and, and the water level in the reservoir has increased, we're going to do away with some measures that would probably have a positive impact on, on reducing wasteful water usage. Well, that, that kind of gets to a question that I wanted to get into uh, it hasn't been that traumatic of an experience, I think, for Taiwan, but it was, I think, a bit of a wake-up call to have the water cut off two days a week for many people. Was it, now that it's kind of over, maybe, uh, do you think it's going to be enough of a wake-up call that there will be, uh, this will become a sustained issue, there will be sustained focus on water conservation and, and developing this industry? Well, based on past experience, unfortunately, I'd have to answer no, because it's not the first time there's been rationing in Taiwan. Um, I've lived through rationing seasons in Taiwan previously. Uh, it, it, it is a big inconvenience, a big inconvenience if uh, the gym doesn't have water on certain days, swimming pools get emptied, can't wash your car, etc. Not the first time it's happened, so uh, people don't seem to have learned the lessons of, of this experience. And that, that's really unfortunate. It makes it even more unfortunate that officials are so quick to uh, take off the, the uh, rationing pr pro uh, procedures that have been implemented. Jane, can you save us from this gloomy forecast? Have you seen any, any signs that uh, maybe some kind of new policies coming out? Um, well, I think the key thing which economists have said is that water prices are too cheap mm. and that encourages people to waste water. And unfortunately, just raising water prices is very politically unpopular. And right. look at what happened when electricity prices were raised. You know? Right. So um, 
I, I don't see any new policies yet. So, so you were talking about raising prices. Maybe that's not going to happen for consumers, but at least this week, uh, Economics Minister John Dung announced that he's looking to impose uh, a water consumption fee on big industrial and business uh, water users. Uh, so is that a step towards what you think needs to happen? Well, I think the challenge for the water company is that absent increases in, in prices and or a significant a subsidy or, or spending budget for, for the infrastructure, they cannot spend on the upgrade that's necessary. So even the measures announced this week by the economics ministry are probably not going to generate uh, enough income for the water company to ingress, uh, invest significantly in infrastructure. So it might reduce slightly the amount of water that's being used, which might save some of the water in the reservoir. So maybe we can have swimming pools and wash our cars, et cetera. But it's certainly not going to generate enough money for significant investment. Mm. All right. So Running along. We are done with drought, done with drought, done with drought, at least for now. Hopefully. We'll see. Up next, we're back into international relations. It seems uh, Taiwan's plans to increase restrictions on food imports from Japan is starting to cause a bit of tension between the two nations. The new rules Taiwan is proposing are aimed at preventing imports of food from areas affected by fallout from Japan's 2000 nuclear disaster. Uh, Basically, we're talking about more certificates of origin, so we know where the food is from, uh, and radiation inspection forms for certain goods, certain classes of goods. Uh, Japan, earlier this week, renewed its call on Taiwan to cancel these plans, uh, but Taiwan is so far unswayed and remains set to move forward with regulations. Uh, Those are supposed to go into effect next Friday. Uh, So just to give a little bit of background, we've talked about this before on the show, uh, but this is uh, a reaction to a recent food scare in Taiwan, right? Yes, it was found in March that food food items from, from five prefectures, which were involved in or close to the Fukushima nuclear disaster um, had entered Taiwan with false labelling, their place of origin. So consumers were unwittingly um, buying and eating food from um, areas surrounding Fukushima. Which Taiwan had put a ban on. Uh, Yes. Right. Uh, And so this is kind of a reaction to those revelations, these new uh, regulations that are going to go into place. Uh, Now, Earlier, a delegation of Japanese lawmakers visited Taiwan to urge the government not to implement the new regulations. So that's kind of a sign that Japan is really unhappy about this. What is this going to mean for uh, relations between Taiwan and Japan? Well, it's it's an interesting question because there, there's been so many positive developments over the last few years, most notably a fisheries agreement um, in, in the areas around the disputed Diaoyu ties. Uh, and that was that was considered an extremely good milestone for President Ma and his foreign policy team. It's something that I've been under negotiation for many years, not necessarily a partisan political issue from a domestic Taiwan perspective. Uh, so they were able to sign this agreement. It expanded the, both both the area as well as uh, the you know, regulatory approach for, for who gets to inspect Taiwan ships. So it, all in all, it was, it was a very good thing for Taiwan. I think Japan was happy. Uh, Taiwan was happy with some of the political outcomes as well from that agreement. Taiwan fruit has become very popular in, in Japan as well. Uh, I think the long-term issue here is not just the food safety perspective, but also what would be the impact on Taiwan's potential entry into the TPP. Will will Japan uh, consider this kind of a a market access barrier that Taiwan has imposed? And 
with Japan's relation with the U.S., might it use this as leverage, you know, uh, access to the TPP, might it use this as leverage to get Taiwan to back off on this issue? It, it's something that, that bears watching in the coming months as Taiwan continues to, to pursue TPP entry. Uh, and, and I would expect that Taiwan is going to have to increase those efforts if the TPP actually look, get, gets closer to being finished, which President Obama is now renewing his efforts to do so. Uh, so Taiwan is on the outside right now, and now you have a significant TPP member country who has a good reason to oppose Taiwan's entry because uh, they're going to say uh, you know, it's not, say, a, a tariff issue, but mm. Taiwan is imposing more regulation, red tape, mm-hmm. et cetera, on our food products. Uh, and, and Japan could, could, could argue, rightly or wrongly, but they could argue that this is a an unfair trade barrier. And this is not a country that's ready uh, to join a a free trade agreement. But Jane, you were saying uh, before we started recording that you don't expect uh, Taiwan to back down on this. No, I don't. And I think what Ross says raises two sort of very interesting points. But the first point I would make is that food safety, I think, was one of the reasons why the KMT was thrashed so badly in the municipal elections last year. And um, there have been repeated scandals, and each time the my administration says, um, you know, they'll improve it, and then it happens again. So I don't think the government is going to back down on this at all. And my second point is that when Ross mentions the TPP, my understanding is that's sort of an outstanding issue with um, the US and free trade agreements with Taiwan, um, is that they want Taiwan to improve its domestic climate and not let domestic politics trump issues like this. Mm. And um, one incident, I think, was in um, several years ago when um, Maying Dole decided to lift imports on certain kinds of beef, and then the legislature overturned it. Mm-hmm. And um, from what I understand, I think the US would like to see very consistent sort of policy making and basically the legislature and executive UN being able to stick to decisions in a sort of more predictable environment. So that is interesting that Ross raised the issue of the TPP because that's actually a concern mm-hmm. regarding Taiwan and free trade agreements that you know, domestic issues like this. Right. Well, let's dwell on uh, the domestic political dimensions of this for just a moment, because uh, another big story that was kind of rolling out almost every day this week is the recent pesticide scare involving tea leaves. Now, this goes back all the way to mid-April when we learned that imported rose tea material for soft drink chain Stornoway uh, contained 13 kinds of pesticides, including DDT. Uh, The government promised to investigate the the up and down the supply chain in Taiwan, and it's made good on that promise. So pretty much this week, every single day, we were hearing about uh, a new sort of thing that we don't want to be drinking. And uh, also this week, DPP presidential candidate Tsai Ing-wen says her party is coming up with a new food safety system for Taiwan. So uh, this thing does seem like it's kind of uh, building political steam. And uh, do you guys see this uh, playing a big role in the upcoming presidential race? Well, uh, it it's possible, but the food scares have gone on in Taiwan for, um, unfortunately, as long as I've been in Taiwan, which is 20 years. So it involves more than just policies at the central government level. From, you know, it involves training of, of food safety inspection officials at, at the central government or the county government or municipal government level. Uh, it involves real penalties, not, not penalties that could just be considered the cost of doing business by companies. It involves the elimination of corruption, which is also very often the case. Uh, bureaucracy, uh, where it's sometimes members of the public have brought to the attention of authorities uh, their concerns about food safety, and it was ignored. We saw that with some of the oil scandals over the last couple of years. 
So there's more to it than just high-level um, announcement of some new regulations. Uh, it, re- it really involves a concerted effort across society. I, I don't think we're quite there yet. So regardless of what the DPP announces for their food safety policy, I think there's still a long way to go, which makes it easy, actually, for for the foreign trading partners to, to say, well, don't just blame our foreign products, actually. Uh, it's your domestic system that that's the problem. Mm. Well, Ross was keeping this in uh, far too much the realm of actual practical solutions and, and, and <laughs> things that matter. Uh, can Jane, can you take us back into the realm of uh, politics and, you know, the, the important stuff? Okay, well, um, I think politically it would make complete sense for the DPP to focus on something like this because it takes public attention away from its weaknesses, which is really China policy. I think the more the DPP sort of pushes domestic issues like food safety, the better it's going to do in the election. So I think it would make complete sense for the DPP to pursue this. Having said that, I don't know whether this will become a major issue in the election. I think we need to see what happens. And there might be other domestic issues which resonate with the public far more, which the DPP might choose to concentrate on. Mm. And also, uh, similar to some of the other issues, whether it's a construction scandal or accident or, or food safety. Uh, sometimes these things have happened under the watch of a DPP administration, whether it was under the central government level during President Chen Chuebien's years or at the municipal level. So if there's a food safety issue in a county or a city ruled by the DPP, they have to be very careful because uh, making this into an issue becomes very easy to say, well, your, your officials have also been negligent in how they've handled this. Nobody has the perfect record to stand on on this issue. But it also depends on political skills. And you've just reminded me of the gas explosion in Gaoshun. And I think Chenju pretty much came out smelling of roses and Mayim Joel sort of... Well, you don't really want to smell like roses right now in Taiwan. That's not quite... (laughs) But but the interesting thing about the Gaoshun explosion is that uh, for, for a good portion of the last... 20 years that, uh, and when these these pipelines have been in operation, the DPP has been the the, the political party that's been in control of Gaoxiong. Exactly, so, but people blame the central government. They didn't blame the DPP, right? Uh, I think that uh, on the food issue, I think everyone's hungry for solutions. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was good. That was good. Hungry for solutions. You could you could write the campaign speech for these guys. <laughs> they know where to find me. <laughs> All right, so uh, we are going to leave that issue and go to our final issue for the day, uh, and we are keeping it in the international sphere. Uh, And, uh, of course, there are some problems in Taiwan's food safety, but in Australia, we learned this week that there are quite a few problems with how the food gets produced. An Australian Broadcasting Corporation investigation earlier this week uncovered evidence that Taiwanese nationals and other foreign workers on working holiday visas face slave-like conditions. Uh, That's their phrasing. The abuse includes underpayment, long hours in harsh conditions, and even reported instances of sexual assault. Uh, During this clip from the program, we hear about the experience of a group of Taiwanese workers. At 5 a.m., 31-year-old Stephanie from Taiwan begins her working day. She came to Australia on a 417 visa to travel and work, believing she'd be paid fairly and treated with decency. In Taiwan, we we try to find our rights, but in here, you know, we, we, we are like a homeless. You know, we... We don't know the rule, and though no one can help us. Right, so we hear there uh, a group of Taiwanese workers. We learn uh, later that uh, 
they they say that they've been paid less than Australian workers. Uh, somebody in their group experienced uh, pretty severe sexual harassment. Uh, the report goes on to uh, detail some of the ways that this is happening, including uh, uh, middlemen that are. Uh, in, in, in some cases, moving these workers from job to job, setting them up in jobs that are illegal, underpaid, uh, don't have the proper documentations for these jobs. Uh, so that's kind of just the, the bullet points of what this report says is going on. Uh, Jane, when you watch this, uh, what, what, occurs, what, what comes to your mind as some of the, the, the root issues that are, are coming into play here? First of all, what's important to remember is even though some of the Taiwanese workers are earning $18 per hour instead of the Australian legal wage of $25 per hour, um, this compares to Taiwan's hourly rate of $4.95 Australian. Mm. So I think a lot of Taiwanese are completely unaware of their rights because, first of all, um, the salary they're receiving is sort of up to almost five times more, four times more than what they're getting in Taiwan. And secondly, I did a very in-depth story about Australia and Taiwan relations. That was about a decade ago. But um, the issue was language problems, that Mm -hmm. there isn't much written information in Australia in Chinese, let alone in complex characters. Right. And um, I I think that language problems are probably playing a big part in this and people are unaware of their rights and they don't know how to get help. Also, though, to be fair to Australia and its government officials, uh, uh, their their representative office in in Taiwan is is an excellent resource where people could make inquiries before they depart to to participate in this program and I, I think that office works very hard in, in my experience to promote Australia and, and its products and education and tourism and the work the working holiday program so I, I think it, it it's up to the people who are going before they go to learn about it uh, and to be fair to the Taiwan government uh, they have some very effective staff at their representative offices in different cities in Australia as well so uh, for, you know, for the the person from the clip. Um, you know, saying she she felt homeless and she didn't know her rights. I will question that really because I think there are resources that were available to her both before she left and, and after she arrived in Australia. Unless it truly is a case of of trafficking or slavery, where where she's locked up and and um, that, that that's obviously a crime anywhere. But but I think Jane made an excellent point about how how much higher the wages are in in Australia and and, and frankly. Uh, Unpaid overtime and long working hours is something that Taiwan workers complain about all the time. Now, and I'm not referring to foreign laborers in Taiwan, but even blue collar or white collar workers in Taiwan um, often complain about this. And it's an ongoing issue for, for domestic workers and domestic politics. So this is a story that's been uh, coming up, you know, pretty much on a daily basis this week. Uh, but do you think that it's going to do anything in the long term to uh, either taint the image of this program among Taiwanese or uh, maybe convince governments that any visa that you set up that has working involved with it, uh, you know, has some room for abuse. So uh, maybe it's something that needs to be reformed to some extent. Is, is there any staying power to this story? Possibly, because uh, uh, visa-free entry and working holidays is something that the Taiwan government has pursued with, with um, countries around the world over the last few years. And, and to be fair, they've done that fairly successfully, certainly on the visa-free entry, but working holidays as well. Uh, so it's been a positive accomplishment for Taiwan's government to make this available to, to its citizens in places all over the world. Uh, but with regards specifically to Australia, Taiwan is also interested in signing a trade agreement with Australia, and, and there might be domestic pressure now that will be raising this issue uh, on the Taiwan side, which, which 
which might delay uh, pursuing this because if, if Taiwan government, regardless of whether it's a KMT or a DPP government, were to pursue this, there might be people from the other side who say, oh, how could you talk about an uh, investment or trade agreement with this, this country that is, uh, quote unquote, abusing young Taiwanese uh, workers. Um, so uh, it, it's not a good situation. I do think the best solution ultimately, though, is, is still remains with the people who are going on the program to familiarize themselves with, with the details before they go. Yeah, I would agree with that. And as, as to whether this is an issue when Australia eventually signs a free trade agreement with Taiwan, I think it all depends on how well the Taiwanese authorities, the Australian authorities handle this. I think how well they educate people who are planning to take a working holiday and how much information is passed around in Taiwan about the situation in Australia and where you can go to, you know, if you have a issue with labour rights and things like that. So it could well die down or it could continue. It's all up to how it's handled, I think. Right. And and going forward, uh, one of the groups that says that they're going to be watching this uh, is a Taiwan group called the Taiwanese Working Holiday Youth. Uh, They've kind of Similar to what you guys have been saying, they've, they've been saying one of the key issues is education, and they're going to be working with various government agencies uh, to uh, up the education that uh, these workers receive before they leave on these trips. So uh, that might be one of the biggest responses that comes out of this. They're also going to be working with various agencies in Australia, the a union in Australia as well, uh, to kind of promote this issue. So uh, probably not the last that we've heard of this, but... The last that we are going to talk about it tonight, because uh, we're going to have to wrap it up there. We're out of time. You can leave your thoughts on this week's major stories on the Facebook page or on our blog. You'll also be able to find this program online at the ICRT website and on iTunes. If you're listening to us through iTunes, please take a second to rate and review the show. It lets us know what you're thinking and helps other people discover the program. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Jane Ricards. Jane, thank you. Thank you, Keith. And Ross Feingold. Ross, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Keith. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, www.icrt.com.tw. Now, keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT-FM 100.